0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair.
1: It's such an honor to present this next
0: award.
2: And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to.
0: And the Oscar goes to. And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me.
2: I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won best picture.
3: I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With David Canfield. Hi. And Rebecca Ford. Hello. On today's episode, we'll be talking about the raft of news about the upcoming Oscar ceremony, including who the hosts will be and whether or not they will require vaccines to attend. We'll answer some of your lingering questions about last week's nominations, including the hopes for movies like Flea and The Mitchells vs. The Machines. And at the end of the show, we will have a really exciting interview with Billie Eilish and Phineas, who are Oscar nominated for their song from No Time to Die. And they're interviewed by Sinead Burke, who is the founder of the organization Tilting the Lens and the host of the podcast As Me with Sinead. It's a really wonderful interview. So let's start with the big news of the week. We have Oscar hosts. Uh, They announced that Amy Schumer, Wanda Sykes, and Regina Hall will be hosting the Oscars together as a trio, um, following a bunch of rumors and then a report in Variety that broke a little bit early and maybe took some of the steam out of the Good Morning America announcement that was scheduled for Tuesday morning. Um, Although, as I was saying, I like that they treated the announcement of the host as an event, even if the news broke early. Um, Rebecca, you were on the news for us on Monday um, as Variety first reported it. How do you feel about it? What? How does this rollout seem to you? I
4: feel optimistic. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yay! I, I mean, I think it's an interesting trio. I'm a big fan of Regina Hall. I feel like every time I interview her, she's just so quick and smart and funny and charismatic that I think I'm really excited for. I feel like she's been a little bit underestimated. And so I'm really excited to see her take the stage. Um, and then Wanda, I feel like, you know, I was watching this morning a piece of her guest hosting Jimmy Kimmel, and she's just so good and such a veteran that I think it's a really interesting group. I feel like Amy is the one that people are sort of most mixed about. I don't know how you guys feel, but I think they all bring sort of a different kind of uh, comedy to the stage.
3: I feel like we were just talking about Regina Hall, maybe because of her Sundance movie, Richard, was like, I I remember talking about support the girls into a microphone relatively recently. And again, like you were saying, Rebecca, like thinking about how great she is and how underestimated she is.
5: Yeah, she was in Master, and when the, uh, which is an interesting horror movie uh, uh, set in a college campus, um, and when the announcement was made that she was going to be one of the three hosts, I said, oh, is there synergy here? Is Master a searchlight thing? Is this, you know, Disney, ABC trying to really bring all their properties together because Amy Schumer's on a Hulu show that's coming up? Mm -hmm. Um, And no, it's Master's Amazon. So um, the Regina Hall choice feels that much more inspired or sort of out of left field. Maybe there's another project she's involved in that I'm not aware of, but... Yeah, I mean, in terms of the Amy Schumer doubt, I certainly saw a lot of that on Twitter, usually from people who are, you know, not to be listened to, for the right. most part. Um, but I hope, my hope for her presence, you know, because I, I, it's going to be that like one, like they go kind of successively, right? I don't think it's going to be the three of them on stage the whole time, mm-hmm. is that Amy opens the show with a kind of Gervais-esque skewering of people in the room and of the industry, because she's definitely capable of that. And then Wanda and Regina can do other things.
6: Yeah. I think um, Regina, because Regina was the one that popped out as most surprising to me, uh, just because the other two were more seasoned comedians who have more experience, I think, hosting. Um, But Regina Hall was in Girl's Trip, which I think Will Packer produced. Mm -hmm. Um, So they did have a connection there. And um, I totally agree with both of you, though, that she seems like a perfect kind of tone for the show. And I, I think having two comedians... Uh, and having her energy kind of mix it up a little bit'll bit, be really interesting. Like I, I'm really excited for all three of them. And I think for my enjoyment of the show, it's a really good group of 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 hosts. But it does feel a little bit like, I don't want to say underwhelming, but, you know, there's so there was so much talk about you know what big star are they going to bring out to host and bring all the viewers back and what's this group going to be because there was that that meme going around when the the three X structure was first announced and it, it does feel slightly random and and grab baggy and I don't know that's necessarily a bad thing but I don't think that they should expect it to to move the the ratings needle at all.
3: Yeah, I think the star thing is such a double-edged sword, and that's why they've been having such a hard time getting people to do it. And, like, by having the trio, I think, is helpful. Like, you can imagine all three of these people being like, I don't want to do this on my own. Like, I don't want to bear the blame. But as a group, they can kind of spread it out a little bit. And I, um, you know, all the Oscar Wikipedia pages, whoever is updating them, God bless them, they're so detailed. And there's (laughs) a page for all the previous hosts. And in the 70s, they really went deep on groups of people and just, like, wildly different groups of people. Like, <laughs> in 1973, it was Carol Burnett, Michael Caine, Charlton Heston, and Rock Hudson. Oh, wow. And then <laughs> in 1974, it was John Huston, Burt Reynolds, David Niven, and Diana Ross. So. Oh my God. <laughs> I, I mean first of all, I need to find clips of this and see what it looked like, but just the idea of like a power group and kind of using the dynamics of the different people to bounce off of each other, like even when we've had multiple people hosting like C uh, Martin and Alec Baldwin, or uh, notoriously James Franco and Anne Hathaway, there hasn't been like a dynamic among them, mm-hmm. and even if these three are not on all on stage together, I think the the differences that they will bring to the stage could add a lot.
5: I think, though, Katie, you should mention that it was the 70s. So it was kind of an orgy sex party vibe up there with yeah, the multiple yeah, hosts. Well, yeah, it wasn't...
3: I mean, there's no guaranteeing that they that these three won't bring that as
5: well. <laughs> right. <laughs> Do you think there's any deliberate symmetry with the fact that Regina King opened the last ceremony and now Regina Hall is <laughs> just a sort of honoring of the Reginas, the Regini?
3: It would be cool if Regina <laughs> King came back for a like a cameo. Again, this year to like hand it off to the next Regina. <laughs>
5: yeah, with another beautiful tracking shot.
3: Yeah, and then Regina Spectre hosts next year, and we <laughs> yeah, continue. Exactly.
5: And of course, the
6: first hostless Oscars of this era, Regina King's win, was what opened that show. So it is like because uh, oh. Amy, yeah, Amy, Tina, and Maya gave her the first award of that night. So um yeah, it's Regina's wow. all the time, I guess. So I guess we should be expecting Regina Hall to open.
3: <laughs> good, good memory. Um, well, this has been a big week for just little tidbits of Oscar news. And kind of hours before the news started breaking about the hosts, the Academy themselves announced their plan for it's not the Twitter Oscar. I'm going to look up what it's really called, but it really just feels like the Twitter hashtag Oscar. Hashtag Oscar's
6: <laughs> fan favorite.
3: Fan favorite, yeah. <laughs> and then che- hashtag cheer moment. Is that yeah. the. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> there's, there's a lot going on. Um, David, you wrote about this one for us. And. Um, I like there's there's a wide range of skepticism to be brought to it but as Oscar fans I feel like we're um we're required to have a little faith in this. So what are we expecting from this um this social media geared part of the Oscars this year?
6: To be honest, I'm not entirely sure what the what <laughs> what the plan is here. I I kind of perused the hashtags a little bit and it was a really dark place, so I don't recommend anybody do that. <laughs> if you have like people you like in your feed tweeting them out, that's great, but I wouldn't like Look to see what people are saying, because there's... How Um, much of
3: it is Furious Spider-Man fans?
6: There's Spider-Man Fury, and then there's satire Spider-Man Fury, and it just kind of all (laughs) blends together in this fairly nightmarish... Yeah. But, like, that is, I think, the point of this (laughs) (laughs) award, is to get Spider-Man a moment at the Oscars, and I, from my early sampling, it looks like that's going to happen one way or another. Yeah, I think that the, the plan right now is for... They have a way of voting on Twitter. They also have a form you can do on the Academy website that's pretty easy. You vote for your favorite movie. They tabulate it. And then the the most voted film will get a moment on stage announced by three voters randomly selected who are flown out for an all-expenses-paid trip to the Oscars. Uh, the the Wait, no,
3: Okay, now having looked through all of these tweets, is it going to be random or are they going to find people who do not seem like lunatics who are voting in this?
6: Well, they're also allowing people to vote 20 times a day. And I, I don't want to call those people the lunatics, but there's certainly like, <laughs> there's a skewing toward the the most passionate of of Oscars fan-favorite voters. So I don't really yes. know... <laughs> What, what that means um but some group who very eagerly participated in this campaign will be there on oscars night in an attempt to bring the normies back to the academy stage it's going to be kevin smith in disguise <laughs> and jimmy kimmel
3: yeah. <laughs> don't underestimate the power of the gaga
4: army though like it could just be house of gucci just oh very actually very
6: true well. that's a great
4: I mean, point I'm, I'm expecting bts's most recent music video to be <laughs> to win this
3: prize i don't know what you guys are talking about no those people are the most powerful ones on the internet oh, yeah. that's true
4: and the
5: winner is come to brazil like <laughs>
3: <laughs> um richard and rebecca how How much are you expecting this to be chaos and how much does it feel like the Academy just like once again bending over backwards to try to get people to like really engage in the show?
4: I feel like it's going to be anticlimactic during the actual show because it's not an actual Oscar, so they don't get an actual statue. And so it's. I feel like it's just going to be someone being like, and the fan favorite Oscar movie is... Spider-Man, and then we move on. I I don't yeah. I just don't know how they make it feel like a real moment. Um, unless, you know, Tom Holland's going to come out and dance or something. I just which he should, which he should. I'm still <laughs> I'm still very much in favor of that. Um, but I I'm yeah I'm not sure how it's going to play out to feel significant.
5: I was debating this with a friend yesterday, and, you know, because we sort of all on this podcast and could just straddle both worlds where we're fans, but we're also critics and we're also kind of hoping the Academy and the Academy Awards can be their best self. But like, none of us really know what that is because the industry has changed so much. Viewership has changed so much, changed so much that like, but I did see a lot of sort of self-appointed Oscar purists or whatever, rolling their eyes at this announcement. And I get it because it does seem a bit slapdash and, you know, sort of obviously prone to manipulation or grievous error, you know. But, like, the fact of the matter is, if more people don't watch this, the show is going to slowly die. And so any effort made, whether it's a cheesy Twitter poll or whatever, to bring in and engage younger audiences, newer audiences, people who don't pay attention to this normally, I think, at least from my perspective, I kind of have to welcome, at least as an interesting experiment. Um, Hmm. I don't know that nominating far from home or no way home rather um for best picture would have done the same thing i kind of doubt it i think it's more about stunts and casts and you know like and and, and having actors presenting things or having beyonce and billy eilish perform and advertising that starting yesterday you know i don't mind all the flashy embellishment because what's at the core of it is something that i like and value um as much as other people like and value the super bowl which has its own myriad problems and I'd recognize that the Oscars are by no means perfect, but uh, I think it's worth trying to save and, and give a little bit of a shine back to. And if this is the kind of thing that it requires, then so be it.
3: Yeah. I mean, if, if getting Drive My Car Best picture nomination then requires the Academy to give a weird semi Oscar to Spider Man, like that's a worthy trade off, right?
5: I think it's... yeah, and to, to the extent that I'm, I've, I've kind of radicalized, and I'm like, they should have just given them the nomination. Like, w- like why not? What's, what is that? What, what do you lose? The
3: Spider fans have gotten to you.
5: Like, <laughs> but what do they lose, really? You know, like integrity. Yeah. But no one knows who voted for what. Maybe they could just, we could just all assume that like the visual effects branch is so powerful that they got a best picture nomination for Spider Man. You know, I, I'm not suggesting that the Academy manipulate the results, but like, <laughs> what is the point of of being stalwart about it when that position keeps losing ground. I guess. Yeah. I think it's pretty stupid and pretty harmless
6: <laughs> what they're doing. I, yeah. <laughs> I, I just, I, I, I don't. It doesn't bother me. I, I think that. I remember when the popular film Oscar was announced and very, very briefly lived on as a as a proposal for the actual Academy to vote on. That I found way more offensive and potentially damaging to an Oscars credibility mm. because you had actual Academy members like doing this weird rivaling award to best picture that kind of undermined everything (laughs) like nobody won in that scenario. Whereas with this one, I mean, the Academy votes for what, for what it votes for. Um, I think they voted for, in my opinion, a not great wildly popular movie and don't look up. They are capable of doing that. Um, They did not vote for Spider-Man. So, you know, if this is a consolation for, for the, their own tastes and, and how they don't align maybe with general movie goers completely, then that's fine with me. I don't think it's going to impact the show significantly.
3: Yeah, that's been the maddening thing about this last round of like, well, why couldn't they nominate the popular movies? Like Jimmy Kimmel got in on this, former Oscar host, um, and Spider-Man being kind of the cudgel they were beating the Academy with, when like, Dune and Don't Look Up are both like objectively visibly popular, and there's this huge range of titles that are in there. Power of the Dog is popular by, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever Netflix metrics we have access to. It gets better than last year when nobody was seeing anything, Um, and maybe the ratings will be better as a result, but it's the the like the questioning what the actual awards themselves are for is much more infuriating than like well, let's figure out how the show should look and get people to tune in.
5: Right, it's the it's the adornment around it that I think they need to add, and maybe this is part of that. You know, and um, mm-hmm. I like I am I I want every award televised, but like if you need to stretch that show into longer than four hours just to get that kind of Grammys esque like you watch the performances, you watch the stunts. You don't you, like the awards are nice, you know, add ons, but like. I don't know. I'm I'm sort of increasingly okay with rethinking the scope and focus of the show to some extent.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's not like the nominated movies don't have their moment. You know, they, they, the speeches are still going to get televised. So then if you give over more time to like a star-studded, we don't talk about Bruno, like, you know, performance on stage, like that, that balance is still there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's my personal hope, by the way. I just want Andrew Garfield and Tom Holland and God knows who else singing on stage.
6: And if anything, the the choice of hosts, which was also which was also you know unofficially announced uh, the same day as this, proves to me that the investment really is in making a funny, good show as well as they can, and that was that was yeah. reassuring to me. The choice of the host is like defiantly not pandery.
3: <laughs> what would pander? What would have felt pandering? Well,
6: someone who someone who they know will bring in a more general audience. I don't know that any of these comedians mm. necessarily, or actors in, in Regina Hall's case, necessarily bring in that kind of broad general audience that's very far away from the Oscars that they're trying to lure in. I think that yeah. people who are excited for the Oscars are probably excited for this group of hosts. I am. Um, but I don't know that that is going to translate to the very wide uh, viewership they're trying to capture. Um, so to me, it just seemed like a, an affirmation that they're going to try to do a fun show. And whoever
5: watches will enjoy it. But next year they should really have the Hype House host it.
3: Um, Well, let's go back to the the first Oscar ceremony controversy that we were all talking about before all this came up. And maybe that was all part of the plan. Um, But last week, it broke in The Hollywood Reporter that they will not be requiring vaccines to attend the Oscars. They're requiring PCR tests, I believe, within some amount of time. Um, The rules around this are unclear, since as far as we all know, like Los Angeles County requires vaccines for indoor events. And I I don't know if anyone has any clarity on how that's going to go. David, you and um, Rebecca and I we were talking to some reps last week and got kind of just a series of astonishment that it was happening and expectation that we would walk back. Is Do we still think that they're going to have to go back on this or figure something out to make people feel comfortable going to the Oscars?
4: I do think they're going to walk it back. I think this is going to be a, a popular Oscar um, switcheroo <laughs> eventually because um, you know, I was talking to several reps right after this was announced and one of them was saying He was on the phone with a bunch of studio execs when this news broke and they all were just like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, this is not happening. Like, just as you were saying, complete shock. And, um, you know, I think we're recovering from this last surge. And yes, L.A. is definitely opening up again, but it seems a far leap to, you know, sort of be fine with not requiring that one basic standard for such a Mm -hmm. massive event.
5: There was also an interesting, which is another reason why I agree with Rebecca, that they're going to walk it back, because it did present an interesting investigative element in that the SAG awards are requiring it. So you could look at who went to the SAGs and then who didn't go to the Oscars and be like, well, that person's not vaccinated, you Mm -hmm. know, uh, or or reverse for for the other way around. I mean, Um, didn't go to the SAGs, did go to the Oscars. And I don't think anyone, publicist or talent or anybody wants the Oscars to be viewed as a way to find out who's not vaccinated, you know? Yeah. So I feel like they're going to have to cut their losses and then blame a lot of no-shows on scheduling or whatever else. I mean, Rebecca and I are about to (laughs) hit the trail for a solid month of
6: really wall-to-wall events, and everyone's coming back out. And a lot of these events, if I believe all of them except for the Oscars, require proof of vaccination uh, in addition to testing – And to your point, Richard, that will (laughs) make it even clearer who is not participating in these things, who suddenly shows up at the Oscars. Um, I just don't see how you would get around that if you were repping someone and you didn't want that out. It just feels in addition to not being safe and and feeling like you're um, going toward moving toward the wrong (laughs) side of this you know, divide in Hollywood, which we know there is one. Uh, It's also just feels
5: kind of dumb in terms of the way that people are going to be outed. Yeah. Well, it's just a reminder that the academy and and sometimes the industry at large is really not cognizant enough of how the Internet functions. It's like the minute that (laughs) that that gets announced, the first and only thing people are going to do is start speculating about who and particularly who they made that decision to accommodate you know, mm-hmm. and like that that the academy was like, oh, no, no, it's just so we're kind of like doing things differently. It's like, no, this is proof <laughs> that this is exactly an incitement for people to start conspiracy theorizing. I just feel like this was really boneheaded and proof yet again that not enough attention is being paid to like how the dissemination of information has radically changed in the last few years.
4: I do think this news probably leaked before they were ready to tell anyone it, though. It does sound like you know this wasn't something they the academy announced but i mean to me the whole frustration about this is that i don't have total faith that these other events are even going to not make exceptions for certain people i mean david and i went to telluride and that was supposed to be an all vax yeah. event and from what we've heard there were there was talent there that wasn't vaccinated and i don't know what kind of medical exemption they may be able to get but to me i'm like not totally sure that These events aren't going to make those sorts of exceptions for big names as well. It's just just sort of the world of privilege that, you know, these events happen in. So I just don't know what, you know, I don't have any faith that any of these events is full of completely vaccinated people. Yeah,
5: Yeah, that's probably the realistic. (laughs) But don't you
3: imagine for the Oscars, it only takes like two or three like huge celebrities who are maybe likely to win to say, I'm not coming if you don't require vaccines for them to reverse course.
6: I think it does. Yeah. And I think that I think that's going to happen. You have a wide age range of nominees here and, and people who would be, at, I think, at serious risk. I think we know enough about the difference between vaccinated and unvaccinated people in terms of the risk they pose, uh, where people aren't not not everyone's going to feel safe going or feel like it's worth it. And that should easily be enough for the Academy to switch course. Yeah. Um, but I yeah. do agree. Anthony with-
3: Hopkins used to just say, hell no. We all know he's vaccinated. We saw he got vaccinated on camera Uh, and I don't want him there if he's not safe. He's too
6: valuable. And and to Richard's point, uh, in in regard to Anthony Hopkins, the the Hollywood Reporter piece did did a service by kind of previewing what will happen in terms of the speculation, Mm -hmm. because one detail in that piece was that one of the four, at least one of the four acting Oscar winners of last year was not is not vaccinated. Uh, And obviously, they almost always bring all four out to present um, to the to the to this year's class so and there was huge speculation immediately about which person it was i think most people have have a solid guess um but if you if you open that up then it's just going to be chaos
3: yep uh hopefully by the time this comes out they have a first course and we (laughs) we don't need to further discuss but maybe that will be next week's topic too We want to talk some more about this year's nominees, um, but first, a, a brief pause and a look toward the future. I could not resist the chance to talk about the teaser trailer for Deep Water that dropped this week. It's going to be premiering on Hulu uh, right before the Oscars. I think it's March 17th. Um, it is the Ana de Armas, Ben Affleck movie that got kind of perpetually delayed by the pandemic, and then they broke up. And then who knew if it was ever going to come out? It's going straight to Hulu, which is, you know, maybe not the best show of the studio's faith in it. Um, you know, it's owned by Disney now, which is very strange. Um, and it was just basically one minute long teaser of um, sort of sex <laughs> happening somewhere. It's hard to know exactly what's going on in this scene, but I was fascinated by it. I'm fascinated by the fact that it came out right after the opening weekend of Marry Me, Jennifer Lopez's new vehicle. There's It's so complicated, um, but I cannot be the only one of us who is just really excited to see whatever this movie is going to be.
6: I'm just heartbroken oh. this is not happening in the midst of a Ben Affleck Oscar campaign.
3: I think it's only <laughs> happening because there is no Ben Affleck Oscar Well, they campaign. put the
6: date, I remember when they dated it, originally for March, and I was, I mean, he was always kind of a long shot for a nomination, but he was he was somewhat in that mix. He got the SAG Award nomination. And I remember thinking, if this movie comes out, like, at the height of Oscar <laughs> campaigning for Ben Affleck, I, I don't, I, I, it. it it was like a weird show of
5: faith that he will not be nominated. That was how I took it. And I suppose <laughs> I suppose that is borne out. Uh, what you're missing, Katie, is that minute scene. That is exactly how John Houston and David Niven opened the 74 Oscars.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Weirdly, they were outside under a tree. Yeah, it was a yeah, uh, it was beautiful. very experimental.
5: But the trailer's cool. I mean, I like that it's kind of elusive and you don't really know what's happening or what's what the rest of the movie is and it's a lot more artful than I thought having read about this movie that you know kept getting punted to different dates and now to streaming and you know it it seemed like it was a big disaster there have been rumors on the wind or maybe more than rumors that like Affleck and De like hate it and want to distance themselves from it not just because they would have to do press together conceivably but um but I don't know this first teaser whatever it is really got me I was already pretty invested but like now even more like actually daring to hope that it's a interestingly made movie same same
4: yeah i think i think i think a lot of people are going to tune in the minute it hits hulu and um at least i am and I, I, all of us clearly are so <laughs> i think um it's a really smart move and i feel like the marketing is going to play to our sort of obsession with affleck and his love life so Yeah, I'm excited for it. (laughs) Okay, back to this Oscar season. Um,
3: We have some of your questions from last week's nominations that we wanted to get into. And then uh, further news, which was two streaming dates for possibly the last remaining Best Picture nominees that aren't streaming already. You guys can correct me on that. Um, Drive My Car is going to premiere on HBO Max, which is an exciting deal. It's a Janice Films release, so it didn't have an automatic streaming home that it would have gone to. And that seems like a good home, which we can talk about. And then on the same day, on March 2nd, West Side Story will finally show up on Disney+. Plus. Um, I think this is only a good thing for getting more people to watch both of these movies. Um, do you? Does anyone have anything to add other than, hooray, everyone watch
6: them? Great timing. Um, Licorice Pizza is the only one now that is yet to hit streaming, I believe. Yes. As my family members keep reminding me and, and asking me, when is it hitting streaming? And I don't have an answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, I think that the, first of all, I was so just, Thrilled that drive my car. Got this deal. Um, is going to have that kind of exposure. It's had such an incredible run theatrically um, for this season, where movies of its stripe mostly didn't fare very well, and just the the life it had even before the nominations and now continuing after. So it feels like a really serendipitous way for that campaign to sort of wind down, to get onto screen- streaming and and get those eyeballs for people who didn't feel comfortable going to the theater. Um, and I know many of those people who are really excited to see it who haven't yet. And then for West Side Story, I think it's the same kind of case. It's two movies that are missing a certain chunk of
5: uh, an audience uh, that that now will will get to find those eyeballs. So It's very exciting. I think West Side Story will have a not not even really a second life but kind of its first real life on disney plus like yeah i think that movie's going to be huge there at least i hope it is uh but because i think you know whether it's younger people who stand rachel zegler on twitter but didn't get a chance to see it in theaters for a variety of reasons uh or did get to go see it in theaters but want to watch it over and over again for the rest of their lives like there it is for, you know, for in perpetuity, conceivably. And then all the looky loos who didn't, you know, who were curious about it but didn't, weren't curious enough to see it in the theaters. Like, I, I don't know. I just think that it's really good news for West Side Story. Drive my car, the three hour not an English hurdle for American audiences will, I think, you know, a lot of American audiences anyway will, will be a hurdle forever. But um, I'm really glad that. That's one because, you know, I keep hearing anecdotally from friends, family, like, oh, I really want to see that. It's not playing anywhere. I can't find it. When is it going to be on demand? And now I actually kind of like your family with Licorice Pizza, David, like I can point them to that and say, here you go. And just a few weeks before the Oscars, maybe that will be another little thing in addition to Twitter polls or whatever that helps, you know, eyeballs move toward the show.
3: Yeah, I feel like I would bring up make myself feel old all the time just thinking about myself as like a teenager like being obsessed with the oscars and having no access to like il postino and if it had been like in my house weeks before the oscars i would have been so excited so i hope that there are enough people out there who really want to sit down with three hours or drive my car and know that it's worth it for them and um i'm just so thrilled they've made it so accessible
5: I do really like the image of you, Katie, as what, a teenager, barely yeah.
6: watching Il Pustino? <laughs> oh, yeah.
3: Which I've still well, never seen. Maybe uh, maybe it's on HBO Max and I should watch it right now. <laughs> yeah.
6: Probably the service if it's on one.
3: <laughs> exactly. Um, okay, to dive into a few of your uh, remaining listener questions from the nominations, um, starting with kind of a downer one and then maybe we'll get to some happier ones. Uh, We had Frank write in. Is Flea going to lose three times? I don't see how it'll beat Summer of Soul in Kanto or Drive My Car. That would be its nominations in the documentary category, the animated category, and the international feature category. I'm afraid that's probably right. But, you know, as much as I would like Flea to win an award, I feel like its nominations were still the reward for it. Um, Any of you guys think maybe it
4: stands a chance somewhere? Man, that Mm. is a bummer. (laughs) Yeah. Um, (laughs) I think, I feel like documentary is maybe the best chance for it. Uh, but I think you're right. There are clear front runners, or I think this uh, listener is right, that there are clear front runners in each group. I mean, it's already made history by being nominated in all these, all three categories. And obviously it has been really, really um, warmly received by voters and and viewers in general. So I feel like it's already won in some sense, but I I would love for it to, somehow surprise and win in one of those categories we i gotta
5: wouldn't... get it hashtag cheer moment okay right, if, you know, that's it that's, <laughs> that's
4: how we
5: do it i, I don't want to spoil but i think we all know what moment that is but yeah. um it's like really the only point in the movie where you can cheer
3: they find that cute cat outside their house early uh, on i cheered for that cat that's true
5: okay fair. maybe there too um <laughs> tweet it katie tweet it <laughs> tweet I, the cat. I think it could beat summer of soul me too um i i think that um, just anecdotally talking to people, not necessarily who are Academy voters, but people in the industry who appreciate w- what Questlove did with that film. And it's, you know, for a lot of people, it's the first time they're hearing about this concert. And um, the, the archival footage is incredible. But I think a lot of the people I've spoken to have been like, but it's kind of just a concert film with some talking head interviews and and that they don't necessarily see more elevated artistry beyond that. I mean, it's certainly a huge undertaking, but and it's a really compelling movie. But I think maybe Flea, with all of its added components—animation, this really arresting first-person account, like the, the the timeliness of the you know Afghan refugee crisis then and now—I think the Flea has a shot there.
6: Have we all forgotten my octopus teacher? I mean, <laughs> this yeah, category does not go as we expect, and I think to. The argument that Flea can win here, uh, My Octopus Teacher in part went just because it, it pulled on heartstrings more. And I think people responded to it in a more gut way, even though it was not the most formally interesting documentary of that group. And I think Flea does have that advantage over Summer of Soul, that it's much more of an emotional experience. It's more affecting uh, in a lot of ways. And I, I totally agree with Richard. I think that's where it can win. And I honestly think it has a really strong chance there, even if Summer of Soul is the default frontrunner. Flea also hit um, you know, iTunes and all those on-demand platforms not too long ago. So it could peak with a certain audience as well at just the right time. So both would be great worthy winners. So, Absolutely. Yeah, that's yeah. the good thing. But it's not beating Encanto or Drive My Car. <laughs>
3: Let's go to another movie that a listener is rooting for. Uh, Louisa writes in, would love to hear your thoughts on the animated feature, speaking of Flea. Um, With two Disney and one Pixar title, does Mitchells versus the Machine stand any chance? I would say yeah. I don't. I think Encanto is probably a strong contender for first place, but I think that there's a lot of other strong nominees in there, Flea included. Um, are you guys hardcore on Encanto? Do you think Mitchells can sneak in there?
5: I'm pretty hardcore on Encanto. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I think Mitchells has a lot of love um, it. They have been sending out promo swag for that for what feels like a year, practically. Yes. Um, <laughs> you know, there's a huge push behind it because it's Netflix. But that also could be a mark against it. And Mitchell's is really sweet, and it feels different in certain ways. Um, in Kanto, while lovely in, in a way, like f- it, it follows a similar Pixar pattern that maybe people are tiring of. I don't know. I think the the one thing that Mitchell's doesn't have is. A number one song in America situation, which Encanto does, sure. and also the Lin-Manuel Miranda factor, which uh, is, you know, popping up in other places in the Oscars, and uh, he's definitely an industry favorite. So um, slight edge to Encanto, but Mitchell's would probably be number two would be my guess.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the year that Spider-Verse, which I think is the closest comparison to Mitchell's here, one, it was a Pixar sequel, Incredibles 2, which I don't think really had that much affection. And and a Disney sequel, Ralph Breaks the Internet, I think that kind of cleared the path for it a little bit more um, with whatever sequel snobbery that the Academy still has. Um, But I love Mitchell so much that... I'll be happy just to see them. Katie Mitchell, the character in the movie, is going to be so excited to go to the Oscars. So <laughs> if you're invested in the way that I am. Um, okay, one last listener question and this one, another kind of a bummer um, from Tyler. Is it going to be Oscar so white for the rest of time? Just feels like all the changes made within the Academy in the last few years are not really moving the needle forward. The international presence is notable, but the lack of Black and POC actors and director noms is still so striking. It's just really disappointing as a Black viewer to feel like we are on a hamster wheel with this conversation conversation. I understand institutional change is slow, but also, like Richard Lawson always has said in the past, this stuff is all made up. Um, it is <laughs> a bummer to see it this way. And Richard, this is actually in a piece that um, you are working on; they'll be coming out later. Kind of pointed out that the international bent of the Academy hasn't extended to acting categories yet at all. Um, as you know, noteworthy with *Drive My Car* not getting any acting nominations, same with *Parasite*. So, Richard, from your perspective, like, does it seem like the international bent is just not? getting at the acting representation as quickly as we would like?
5: Well, yeah, because that issue needs to be resolved from two, well, I mean, many approaches, but let's say two major ones one that does really have to explicitly do with um, a more broader inclusive academy itself, which would be, let's look at something like Lingui, the Sacred Bonds, or Atlantics a couple years ago, full of great performances, or at least one big central towering performance and bring those into the mix, you know, Um, because there are plenty of performances by actors, uh, you know, people of color uh, from all over the world that merit, you know, um, inclusion, Drive My Car is a great example. There's Two really, really great performances in that movie. Uh, Parasite is another example uh, recently. So that can be fixed institutionally within the Academy because the Hollywood industry really doesn't have any effect on those movies being made. They exist. The other thing more pertinent to like the local-ness you know,ness of the Academy and the broader industry is that they just need to be making more movies that are, are more inclusive and that are pitched in that sort of awardsy y timber, you know, It's great to have a movie like Get Out or Black Panther recognized, but those are ultimately genre films that are treated as outliers. And I think that um, maybe they need to become more inclusive of genre or there just need to be more movies in the vein of a Nomadland or whatever else that aren't just centering white characters and and white actors. So um, Mm. part of it is something the Academy can do, but unfortunately, a lot of it is these nominations are results of a larger problem.
6: I feel like Rebecca and I talked about this back in Telluride that it was again looking like, you know, you had King Richard and it had to carry so much of that weight this season because there just weren't a lot of other films featuring a black cast that were going to contend. Um, it was a big disappointment that Ruth Naga wasn't nominated for passing or that that movie didn't really go anywhere um, with the Academy. But Otherwise, you know, you have Denzel Washington nominated here, um, Ariana DeBose, and the King Richard stars. And then beyond that, um, there wasn't... The Academy could have definitely recognized the actors from Drive My Car. But in terms of, to your point, Richard, American films and productions and actors to recognize, um, the industry just did not meet the moment in any way. (laughs) And it it felt Mm -hmm. like a really significant to me at least, backslide, even if the nominations aren't completely white as they were in those few years. In terms of what the industry had to offer and what voters had to choose from, it felt like a really bleak slate, um, honestly.
4: Yeah, I think we lost a lot when In the Heights also wasn't part of the conversation because I think that would have been really exciting for um, Latinx representation. But, you know, as as Richard put it so well, it, it's a, a systemic problem about who gets to tell the stories and who gets these studios supporting their stories with the kind of financial backing that an awards season needs. So it's, it's frustrating to say it's about patience because I think we're all sort of fed up with waiting for this sort of change. But, uh, you know, we just have to hope that the gatekeepers are just a becoming more diverse themselves and sort of uh, supporting storytellers that wouldn't have had these opportunities before.
5: And I also think, you know, to kind of amend what I said, like, it is about making more movies starring and about people of color that would fit the traditional Academy bill, but also expanding what that tradition is. Mm -hmm. You know, you look at something like Westerns have historically done well at the Academy. So where is The Heart of They Fall? I know that The Heart of They Fall has more of a comic violent bent to it than did Unforgiven, which was more of a sort of slow burn drama with some shoot-'em-ups within it, you know. But like... The Harder They Fall is chock full of excellent performances. I would say R.J. Siler for Supporting Actor would have been a great, cool choice. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so there there needs to be more just in general, um, whether it's top prestige, Oscar bait, all the way down to genre, and they can meet in the middle somewhere. The Academy can start recognizing, you know, genre stuff and, you know, what, what all that. So it's a huge problem. And I understand this listeners' frustration and all of the frustrations about it. We share that frustration, but it's unfortunately not quite as simple as changing the makeup of the Academy because they still can only interact with, to some extent, at least in the American side of things, the supply that they're given.
3: It makes me think to bring it all the way back to the beginning, like the powerful lead performance in an indie movie that can be driven, uh, Regina Hall. And support the girls like mm-hmm. that's the kind yeah. of movie that like uh, like many white actresses have ridden to Oscar success and has happened far less often for for actresses of color.
5: And I would hope that if it's a hit on Amazon, that Regina Hall in Master could be in awards conversations next year because she is great throughout, has one really towering scene that uh, would play as a you know the sort of nominee clip uh, and play very well. You know, and and I know that it's a small streaming horror film that's premiering in march but of uh, you know so a year before the the next year's oscars but for the time being until this stuff is literally put in a you know older stuffier academy members laps like go seek out other things that are already there and um there's plenty in that number certainly
3: well, it's also a call to represent to awards reps and publicists and people like that who kind of drive these engines. Like there are, you know, there are there are plenty who are supporting these smaller movies that really need that push, but they require some courage on their part to say like, hey, we can really give Idris Elba and The Harder They Fall a bigger push, like alongside everyone else from these larger contenders. You you kind of need to to push that forward harder to get the Academy to pay attention. Mm-hmm. And one last thing before we share uh, the interview with Billie Eilish and Phineas. Um, Speaking of Vidra Elba, The Hollywood Issue is out now. Um, As you listen to this, you can see uh, all of the different covers featuring a huge range of big stars from the year, including a lot of Oscar nominees. We're very proud of that because, you know, you have to book these covers well in advance of the Oscar nominations. And a lot of people uh, on the cover did get nominated, including Penelope Cruz, Andrew Garfield, Kristen Stewart. Um, I have a hard time picking a favorite of these different covers. I really love how bold and adventurous they are once again. I think Andrew Garfield's might edge it out for me for just the acrobatic pose he's got there. What do you guys think? What how? What's your
6: favorite from these Hollywood issue covers? I think Rebecca and I are going to be biased because we each run.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, fine. Just log roll for your cover.
6: Okay. My, my favorite is the Benedict Cumberbatch cover, which I did have the pleasure of writing. Um, but it's Swan, it's got swans and wet shirts and everything you could ever want.
4: Um, and I, I wrote the Idris Elba cover, which I love uh, because he's sitting in a car swimming pool, I guess, um, <laughs> and looks fabulous. But I am i am personally obsessed with the Nicole Kidman cover. I mean, I want to just blow it up and stare at her perfection uh, every day as I, you know, wake up and I'm brushing my teeth or something. She looks phenomenal. Yeah,
5: I think it's fascinating because uh, I didn't know this. I, I thought I knew a lot about Kristen Stewart, but she owns the highest diving board in Los Angeles. It towers <laughs> <laughs> over the downtown uh, skyline. Yes, yeah, on
3: top of the Academy Museum, right?
5: <laughs> yeah, I th- yeah. You can and you, you can dive off it. It'll be your last visit to the Academy Museum. But um, yeah, and I think also the MJ Rodriguez cover with the tiger is so cool, and it's just a really nice mix of imagery and talent from TV and film and smaller films and bigger films, and it's fun. It's different because it's not a combined cover it's several different covers but I think I like that difference it's interesting
3: yeah and shout out also um maybe I just have a fondness for pink suits but Simi Liu uh like Andrew Garfield Mm -hmm. wearing a pink suit and and leaping over a um a crossing sign uh with the Hollywood sign in the background it's really wonderful he's he's a marvel to look at pun intended uh god it really wasn't (laughs) (laughs) it really (laughs) wasn't um so the Hollywood issue is on stands now. The articles will be rolling out over time, including some of them online already, like the Lord of the Rings um, a preview from Amazon. So um, check it out. It's our favorite time of year.
0: The Run for Revogue is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am
4: Fran Libowice. Um, who should be the mayor of New York.
7: We all support that. We support that. (laughs) (laughs) Very nice. Nikki. Yes. It's
0: been really great being in this beautiful pink room.
7: All right,
0: Asha, can you hear us?
7: I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me?
0: We can. We can.
5: All right, here we are.
7: So
3: I'm now here with Sinead Burke, who, uh, well, first of all, Sinead, uh, thank you for joining me now and for the interview that we're
1: about to listen to. This is such a treat, Katie. Thank you for having me involved in this process and to get to talk to you and Billy and everybody else and Phineas yeah. too.
3: Yeah. Well, uh, you are the first guest interviewer I think we've ever had on the podcast uh, who is not working for Vanity Fair. Um, but that's for a very good reason, because I had listened to your podcast, I you know paid attention to your work and your ability to interview people and to talk about yourself, but to use that... In- to the power of making it a better interview. I was so taken by. Um, so I've been so excited to find, you know, we were talking a while about having you interview somebody, and then when this opportunity came up, it seemed perfect. So maybe before we even get to the interview, can you introduce yourself and your work that isn't podcast interviews to
1: people who are listening? Sure. My name is Sinead, and I am an educator, a writer, a writer, an activist, and I lead a consultancy company called Tilting the Lens, which is all about rethinking accessibility through design, which is probably why I had so much fun in this conversation, because so much of my work and my interests are rooted in design, be that fashion and architecture and kind of music, and getting to talk to Billy and Phineas about their connections to those things through their own lived experiences and multiple identities was just such a treat for me to be part of. So I hope it's the same for people to listen to or read the transcript about.
3: Yeah. And you had met Billy previously at a fashion event. So you kind of already had a connection built there on being interested in fashion. And I think both of you approach fashion in a way of expression and accessibility. Then it's different from how many people would think of the fashion industry.
1: Not to compare myself to Billie Eilish, because that would be quite audacious. (laughs) But (laughs) I think we both see fashion as a tool because of the visibility that we hold in the world. Hers because she is Billie Eilish and mine because as a physically disabled person, fashion is a tool for me to communicate who I am But fashion hasn't always been inclusive or welcoming to disabled people and to people like me. And I think Billy, in this conversation, and Phineas in some ways, too, talks about his own experiences of clothes and fashion in that way. I think we were able to connect on that level, despite our lives being very, very different.
3: Yeah. I think my favorite part of this interview we're about to hear is when you asked them what example they want to set for each other. I thought that they really paused and took that in as a question. Is there anything that especially stands out for you? It's been several weeks since you did the interview. Anything that has stuck with you especially?
1: I'm still thinking about Phineas saying to Billy that he wants to set a good example for her in how she should expect to be treated by others. Mm -hmm. I'm the eldest sibling and it really spoke to me in terms of how I want my brothers and sisters but also my friends to exist in the world and we don't always have the privilege or we don't always have the space to be able to set that good example it's not always within our control but i just thought it was a very human moment for a brother and sister who i don't know have have such space and currency in the world that actually to see that moment of intimacy and vulnerability between just a brother and sister was really beautiful to behold
3: And it makes you think about the value of being as famous as they are and having each other, that they have leaned so much on each other through this incredible rise to fame that Billy in particular has had. And I felt like that was a real glimpse into why they stick together and why they need each other so much.
1: And the importance of that. And I don't think Billy could be... Billy without Phineas, and Phineas couldn't be himself without Billy, despite them both doing kind of separate things in different ways. But I think they are kind of the spinal cord of each other's success, not necessarily in terms of how many records they sell, but just emotionally, socially, who they are as people and who they've had to become in such an international spotlight.
3: Well, you spoke to them because they're nominated for the song from No Time to Die. Um, What are you hoping to see them wear to the Oscars?
1: Oh, something unpredictable. I think, you know, Phineas talked about being quite predictable in his day to day choices and something that he doesn't give much consideration to, but did very kindly credit his stylist. So I'm interested Mm -hmm. to see what that partnership brings. And I think what we've seen from Billy in the past two years is a real evolution as she has kind of matured and aged herself. And I think for them as a gift, I just want them to be comfortable. That Mm -hmm. moment must be so terrifying. And fashion can be armor, but it can also be deeply uncomfortable. And I think for me, I always feel my best when I'm wearing something that fits, where I'm wearing something that I feel great and kind of gives me more confidence than I have. So yeah, comfort. But I don't know, maybe pajamas after a pandemic is a bit much for a red carpet. I don't know.
3: <laughs> silk, the finest silk pajamas might be might be the way to go.
1: <laughs> um, well, Sinead, let's listen to your conversation with Billie Eilish and Phineas. For accessibility reasons, I kind of wanted to kick off this conversation with a visual description. So for the audience to be aware of what that visual description is. So a visual description is something that is often used for those who are blind or low vision to give people descriptions and for it to be an experience for them too and participating in an audio format. So I'm going to kick off. To visually describe myself, I am a white cisgendered woman who uses the pronouns she and her. I have brown hair that's usually kind of just below my ear, but thanks to the pandemic, is at my shoulder length. And I am wearing a white t-shirt and a brown kind of knitted vest. And I'm sitting in front of green floral wallpaper at my home here in Ireland. But I want to hand it over to both of you, Billy and Phineas, who wants to go first and visually describe themselves.
7: Girl, you're wearing a Gucci vest. It's not just a vest, it's a Gucci. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I am Billy. I have also kind of shoulder length brown hair dark, dark brown hair, kind of red-ish, supposed to be red. My hair is kind of half up in like a little ponytail on the top of my head, and I have bangs, and my eyes are blue, and I am wearing some necklaces and some jewelry, and I'm sitting on a kind of beige, pink. It's not
2: beige, it's rust (laughs) color.
7: Okay, rust colored velvet couch next to my brother, Phineas.
2: My name is Phineas. I am 24 years old. I'm also a cisgendered male. I identify as he, him. Um, I have sort of shoulder-length hair that I've been growing out for a while. It's my natural color, which is kind of a a reddish-brownish blonde. And uh, I haven't shaved my face in about a week, so I have like kind of a beard. And
1: What are you wearing, Phineas?
2: I'm wearing... Thank you for the... I was forgetting what to say. I'm wearing... (laughs) These these jeans that my girlfriend swears are mine that I've never, ever seen before. And she was like, these are, she goes, these are yours. <laughs> whose who's boyfriend are yeah, I was are like, they? whose boyfriend are these? And I'm wearing a shirt that she got me for Christmas.
1: A little beard, a little ponytail, and everybody with shoulder length hair. I think it's great when a visual description comes together like that.
2: And neither of us are in Gucci.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, you need to be. But kind of speaking of Gucci, you know, we first met at the Gucci Love Parade Fashion Show, and I think at LACMA too in Los Angeles. And for me, fashion has always been a very powerful tool. It has given me, I suppose, a vehicle by which to explain who I am to the world, because people are often curious because of what I look like, because of being disabled. But I'm conscious that fashion and music are sensory tools. You know, one touches our skin and the other can uproot memories. It can even create them. And I wonder, you know, in a personal and professional context, how do you both utilize the tools of kind of fashion and music for your own satisfaction initially, but then also to obtain or to maintain power? Well, for me,
7: fashion has really, since I can really remember, been my kind of expressing tool and how I convey my feelings and And how I feel about myself and my mood and all of the above. And it's really like a a security blanket for me and always has been since literally I can't even remember when it wasn't. And I have this like feeling that I've had for, for many years is kind of this thing about myself where looking back at myself in the past, no matter how weird I thought I dressed or looked or, you know, did this or that as long as i was being genuine and that's really what i was was wanting to wear at the time like i'm always going to look at that and be proud of myself for doing that you know you know i would say that when i was like 15 and 16 when i knew that what i was wearing was exactly how i wanted to present myself and be seen and identify as and no matter how crazy it looks to me now i will always respect that girl you know and and respect that feeling of, of power and this is what I'm presenting myself as and that's it period you know so so uh, yeah fashion is is really is really a communication tool for me and always depicts how I feel and what I how I look and, and move and how I and how I talk and it just it really just it makes me different and if I feel uncomfortable in something that I'm wearing, I feel it just don't feel like myself and i feel like a fraud and i feel angry and i feel overstimulated and you know it's it's interesting it's interesting how how fashion has always made me or broke me you know
1: and that idea that your aesthetic can evolve you know i think we've all had questionable outfits as teenagers and as you said that was an accurate reflection of who we were what we were feeling in that moment but how we want to portray ourselves, how comfortable we feel with that portrayal can evolve over time. I imagine much like music. Phineas, I'm not sure if you want to take the fashion angle or the music angle, but how do you find kind of satisfaction and agency in those two?
2: Good question. I mean, I will happily cop to being a much less uh, innovative style-wise than than Billy is. I feel that Billy is you know, pushes boundaries and wears things that are unexpected. And sometimes we'll be in a venue where the green rooms are maybe up on the third floor of the building or something. And I'll look outside and I'll see the line of kids. And oftentimes it's kids dressed the way Billy would six months ago. Like that's sort I of what it. I'll say. And, um, you know, that's a, a testament to how sort of fashion forward Billy is. And um, I think that the the clothing that I've always felt my most comfortable in um, is is clothing that has a kind of a, a sort of a a timelessness to it. And I try to kind of have the same approach to music. I remember seeing, I think it's a Butch Walker quote, uh, where he said, when I look back at photos, the stuff I never regret wearing is jeans and t-shirts. And um, I definitely feel that way. If I, like the coolest jacket I own, two years later I look back and I think, what was I thinking wearing that jacket? And something very simple I look back on and I think, yeah, I like the way that that has aged. And so I, I find that that approach helps keep me feeling really happy with what I wear. And, you know, I also defer to, I have, I have a, a stylist I love named Anton, who I've worked with for a couple of years. And I think he has great taste and I trust him a lot and I show him pictures of what I like. And, you know, so to me, it's sort of a collaborative effort. And I would say more than anything, you know, I, I identify as a, as a, a musician and that's just really core to my self-concept and you know i i feel like my identity is so interwoven with you know writing songs and playing instruments and and it's just the thing i love to do and i i sit at home and play piano all day regardless of you know what's going on you know with my schedule there's sort of no uh there's no facade there it's just what i love to do
1: And the two creative pursuits come together. And it's interesting what you both said about fashion. I have dwarfism, so I stand at the height of three feet, five inches tall, and I've spent most of my life kind of having the only options but to shop in a children's wear department, which I was so satisfied with at the time. But it often felt like I wasn't able to represent myself to the world in the way in which I could if I had that choice. And so much of my advocacy within the fashion system is rooted in that realization that fashion can be this powerful tool to give us comfort, but to also be a vehicle for communication to everybody else. And whether that's that's about we want people to stay away or to come close to us or to get to know us or to give them an impression of them. And now being in that space where fashion is changing and giving that power to so many more, there's still many more who need to be accommodated. But... For me, it's such a powerful tool in explaining who I am to the world and giving me confidence and space to rest. But I want to talk about kind of that visibility piece for a second, because to to link those two notes, you know, as a disabled woman, I have lived a life of intense visibility. Most often kind of that visibility that's out of my control, because being a little person, people's observations of me is rarely positive. And I think at times as an adult, I've struggled to have agency over that visibility, but like what we were saying through fashion and therapy and family and friends, I've kind of grown more comfortable with that visibility and being a kind of public person who isn't really a public person and kind of more at ease with other people's interest or curiosity. But I'm conscious that you too are very visible people. How do you find agency in your visibility? Gosh.
7: It is. It's hard. It's really, I mean, of course, you can understand this, that it's, it's hard to have eyes out of your control and kind of no matter what you do and how anonymous you would like to be, you can't be. And that sucks. And, you know, it also gives you attention, which a lot of people want, you know, and people crave attention. And so they kind of go well, you should be grateful that you have attention and you have these people looking at you. But, you know, we don't really want that all the time. It's not really, you know, we want to have a sense of anonymity and freedom and, you know, space to make mistakes and to do stupid things and, like, be a person. But, you know, I think you just take the good with the bad and you just pick your battles and go, like, what what is worth, what is worth me complaining about you know like you know I have so many things that are amazing that I get to do and and get to have that I think that it's it's okay for me and it's valid for me to feel bad about a lot of the things in my life but I also know that that those are maybe things I, I, I talk to my own friends and family and therapists about instead of telling the whole world that might not have as much as me and I think that it's really just about like knowing the privilege that you have and like not shitting all over it and being like well oh my life's so hard because it's like well but it's actually not and it it, and you get to do all of these really cool things so I I try to complain as less as, as a little as possible but also be really honest because I think that's another side of it which is kind of the opposite side of of uh of this kind of industry and I you know growing up as a fan and seeing celebrities and people in the public eye talk, I just always felt like everyone was bullshitting and I felt like people weren't telling the truth. And now that I'm in the industry, I know that people aren't telling the truth almost 95% of the time. And so since I've started, I kind of made it a, a, a rule in my own mind of, of kind of trying to be honest as much as I can. And the more eyes that are on me, the less honest I could actually be, which is really interesting to be learning. It's actually really weird because I did grow up as a, a real like fan, like the way that my fans are fans. And I really grew up as
2: a super fan, like, I would actually argue. Yeah.
7: And I, I so I know how they think. And I know that I constantly would be like, why can't my favorite artists just do this? And like, why can't they just do this? And it would be so cool if they could just do this. And it's so funny because I see my fans say things just like that. And it's interesting to now know why those artists artists couldn't do those things because it's just unattainable. It's just not it's not realistic. And there's so many there's so many scary parts of fame and like scary non privacy problems that that require a lot more uh, not lying but just. Dis- not not like being fully open and honest, which is, is sad because I, I always hoped that I would be able to be fully 100% honest and say everything I was thinking all the time. And you just can't because it's, it's just there's too many people with different, with different ideas and different
1: brain things going on. Yeah, no, exactly. And it's not about being deceitful, but finding ways to protect yourself within the chaos, too, and having dignity and privacy for yourself, even in those kind of smaller spaces. But, Phineas, how does a guy who's comfortable wearing just jeans and a T-shirt scaffold the the chaos of having agency while being so visible?
2: Well, I mean, I think, first of all, I want to recognize the sort of difference between the the visibility, you know, spectrum of, of my life and maybe Billy's life and, and your life, I think it's it's... I wouldn't want to not recognize that at the end of the day, we, we made decisions that led to our visibility and, and yours was very much out of your control. And so I think that just sort of stacks the, uh, you know, the ease of, of navigating life factor in our favor. I feel that we Yeah, we've no, I was not trying easier. to
1: compare my life to yours um, at all. No. Uh,
2: I would say that... But
1: also, I chose to be on the cover of Vogue, too, so <laughs> I have a hand in some of this chaos.
2: <laughs> well, that's totally fair. Um, you know, I think that... What I am sort of always aware of is that, and I, I would assume that you on the cover of Vogue, you know, when someone comes up to you with recognition, right, you know, when it when it maybe was in your earlier life and you were somebody was staring at you because of dwarfism, where it's where it's sort of objectifying you in this frustrating, narrow minded way. They're not seeing you for you as the person and if they're coming if somebody's walking up to you and saying i loved you i loved that article i read and i loved you know your yeah, thoughts it's on a this different, thing it's a different it's very thing. different and you know i think the only true button pusher for me is i don't like people showing up to my home because they're not invited and i don't like i also don't like people who who aren't willing to take no for an answer i was in new york recently and was in the was walking and somebody Kind of barely yeah. knew who I was, and was like,
7: "That's crazy." Running, when like people running are up to me and that. was like,
2: "You're Billy's brother, right?" And I was like, "Yeah." And they were like, "Let me get a picture." And I was like, "I'm sorry. I'm I'm on." And they they followed me and yelled at me until I took a photo with them walking by Central Park, and it was uh, it was really kind of intense because I'd said, I, "I'm sorry. I can't right now. I can't stop right now." And they'd they'd sort of yelled at me until I agreed. Almost, which felt,
7: almost every time I I've. Have- and I almost never say no because of this and also because I want to take pictures of people because I want to make them happy. But any, every single time I've said, Hey, maybe not right now, which is again, almost never. But when I have done it, all I've gotten is guilt tripping and very, very rude comments and just disrespect and yelling at me. And it's, Actually, crazy.
2: There are there are plenty of fans who are very understanding about it, totally. and I think that you know, you go, I, I'm really sorry. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm oftentimes I'm late for something. I'm getting out of my car. I'm running to a meeting. I'm late, and somebody asks for a photo, and I say, I'm so sorry. I can't. I'm, I'm running late, and they're, they're sometimes very understanding. But yeah, the the instances of you know, to me the. The, it's not disrespectful to ask somebody for a photo. I don't think, I think, yeah. you know, even if you're in the middle of a meal, it's just making a request. And, and if you say, no, thank you, you know, that's your, that's you having agency over your situation. It's the, it's the not being listened to beyond that, right? Of like, yeah. you know, I've heard you say, no, I'm not, I'm not willing to take that as an answer. Come on, please.
1: Well, it's a cognitive dissonance piece, almost what you were speaking to earlier, Billy, you know, this notion of being a super fan growing up and the superfan not necessarily having an empathy or an understanding for the why of something not happening, for example. And, you know, I can share a little bit of an experience that I had kind of just a couple of years ago where I was walking down the street and two 16 year old boys walked past me. I thought nothing of it until 30 seconds later, one of them leapfrogged over me from behind jumped from the ground over my head, all the while his friend recorded the entire instance on his phone for, you know, virality on the internet. Now, my response, because my background is as an elementary school teacher, was to go and try to go into that school and to speak to those boys and to speak to those students broadly and to educate them about the need for empathy and vulnerability and understanding different people's scenarios and positions. But I think that goal of educating people to be more empathetic about an individual's experiences, whether that is ordering at a restaurant or whether that's living in a very visibly different body. I think that's empathy we all need. But I am conscious that in terms of the conversation for this podcast, I really just want to have a quick conversation, and moment to talk about the extraordinary success that you've had by being part of the Bond soundtrack. You know, I think No Time To Die is an extraordinary feat. And for me, the best Bond soundtracks are often composed and performed with kind of an intentionality of both the Bond and film audience and the franchise. The artist, and again, (laughs) feel free to critique my assumptions around this, but I think the artist almost has to code switch to kind of a new vernacular or a new language musically and lyrically to kind of meet that audience who might not be familiar with their back catalogue in the same way that they are overly familiar with kind of the film. And I just wondered in the constructing and the performance of No Time to Die, what was the kind of methodology that you put together in bridging that gap between Billie Eilish, the Billie Eilish fandom, but then also bringing together the franchise of Bond and appealing to that audience who may be sitting in the theatre, not knowing Zanny, and yet still want to have something that has a legacy behind it?
7: Yeah, this was actually a big a big thing that we went in with uh, to make this song, which is it's really easy to make the same thing again when you know that you're good at it and when you know people <laughs> like it. And what we really, really strived for with this song is we wanted to have it feel like me but take nothing away from the franchise of James Bond. and. Have it sound like me and feel like me, and so that it, because, because I didn't want it to be like a, a new, you know, completely. What the hell is Billy doing? This isn't anything like anything, you know, because that that's jarring and that's kind of disappointing sometimes when people can't make something their own but new, where all they do is just oh, it's it's fully different or it's fully them. So this was something we really, really, really tried for.
2: Yeah, we weren't trying to. You know, it's funny because we. We only have experience making music <laughs> for ourselves. You know, what we weren't trying to do was go in and reinvent the Bond theme, right? We, you know, we wanted to take part in this kind of stylistic area of music. That was what drew us to it in the first place was how much we loved the existing Bond themes like the Adele one and the Paul McCartney, Shirley Bassey. To me, what was then really important was, was not uh taking the Billie eilish out of the equation right it's like it has to be both it has to be yeah, a Bond that's theme. I mean. it has to be a Billie eilish song and if you're not careful it's only one or the other right yeah. it's, a, it's really easy to yeah. do that
7: because you, you 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 uh you kind of just go as hard as you can and that it, it's really hard to like do both you know like it's, it's 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 actually much harder to do both you kind of would think that it wouldn't be but it it really is it's so much easier to just go all or nothing you know and and with this we really really strived to make sure that it was all of the bond that it had all the bondness that it needed but it also had a feeling of billy eilish as the artist and yeah i feel like we we did pretty good in in my opinion (laughs)
1: I know No Time to Die was released in February 2020, and with the pandemic and the world changing, the film itself came out a little bit later. Had you have known of that timeline, would you change No Time to Die in any way? You know, if we were to make it now, yeah. But at the time,
7: no. It, it was just what it needed to be when we made it. I mean, I mean, we were just saying this before that... that no Time to Die was as good as we needed it to be when we made it. And we were just saying earlier today that if they had said, you know, we, we don't really love this song. You write something else? Can you write something else? More like this. Or like, we just, this isn't a, whatever. We would have been like, um, no, <laughs> we can't do that because, because we wrote the exact song that we wanted to write and... Going into it, it was really scary, and we were like, "I don't know what we're gonna do," and I don't want it to be bad, and blah 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 blah.
2: Be a little bit like if you were if you went on a date with somebody and they said, "I love the way you look," but would you try out a totally different personality?
7: Yeah, it's like no. Like
2: this is who I. This is the one we made. (laughs) Sorry.
7: Yeah. Yeah. And so you know, if I was if if I knew that there would be this long in between making the song and it coming out, no, nothing would have changed at the time. I think that the only problem is that because I've aged from 17, from recording the song at 17 years old to now I'm 20 years old, that's a... Yes, happy belated birthday. Thank you. That's a, It's a, it's a yeah. really, really big difference in personality, in, in the way that you are. You know, I'm a, a very different and changed person now. And I think the only thing that bothers me is how different my voice is and how I feel like I could have sung it better now <laughs> than I did then. But at the same time, it's very sweet and cute that it was in that exact time frame, and you know I get to hear that version of myself, you know, so that's fine to me.
2: Yeah, and you have to recognize also okay. at the time that we made. It, I'm sorry to cut you off, but I was going to say that at the time that we made it, it was the best she could do. You know what that's I mean? That's what it's I like, was saying before. You're like, hey, this is how this is. as You know, I recorded the take I wanted to record, and and you get older and you get you know more practiced, and you think, oh, I wish I could have another crack at it, but.
1: I love the way it's only your brother who could say, yeah, it was the best she could do at the time. And um, I'm not sure I would take that criticism from anybody else.
2: I still think it sounds perfect. <laughs> it's just that I know when you're the one singing it, you th- you always think you could do better.
1: Yeah. yeah, Always. And I'm trying to get into this mentality of it doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be done. And your done is always better than you think it is. I want to end with one last question. And for both of you to answer it. What is the impact that you wish to have on each other, and on the world.
2: You say on each other. I love that. <laughs> question. That's never. She's asked
1: very good questions. Yeah, these have
2: been great. We we do a lot of interviews. We do a lot. Of,
1: we were literally dreading today because
7: it's all interviews about Bond, right? And everybody asks the same goddamn questions. And you're not. And, and I love and that. And
2: you also drew the unlucky card. You're the last interview of our day, and so, you know, our our answers by the time if you'd asked all the same questions that the three other interviews had asked, like we'd be giving our worst answers of the day. Yeah. But you've asked completely different new questions. So props to you.
7: But how do we <laughs> want, what effect? I think that it's, that our our age difference and our difference that we're all, a boy and a girl and different and, and just experience different types of, of life and he has male privilege and we both have white privilege and we, you know, there's, we, we both share similarities in ourselves and also very, very different things. And I think that if anything, I just, Really want to have the impact on Phineas that of j- more just like awareness of other people's life situations and and struggles and and privileges. and yeah, I think that like just never I feel like we both really really hold each other accountable for things. I think that that's really good. We don't like let each other say stupid shit or no. crazy shit. you know we we really, really.
2: We say it, but then we call each other out,
7: yeah, <laughs> which I think is really good, and I think we we just we both see each other's differences and I think that we see each other's struggles, and like it makes us m- learn more about the world. I don't know i want I want everything for Phineas, so i love I love my brother, but uh for the world, gosh, yeah, I, I really just want people to be open minded really i i i'm I'm really so frequently fed up in how simple-minded everyone is you know and and it's literally just like whatever is a trendy thing to think everybody thinks that and they think that's the only thing and then there's a new thing to think and then that's what everybody it's just like weird to me like I don't know why people can't just be open to things and differences and I wish people would would be less hateful in the world
1: I think there's a fear about what we don't know, but I actually think acknowledging that we don't know what we don't know is incredibly powerful and beautiful because it opens us up to a whole universe that we've never discovered before. And that's based on those struggles, privileges, lived experiences that different people have. And it shouldn't scare us that people are different to us. It should encourage us and excite us. Yeah, Very true. absolutely. Phineas, what about you? What's the impact you want to have on Billy, no pressure and on the world?
2: Sure. I mean, the impact I want to have on Billy. you know, I think I, I think I have a couple and, and, you know, these are, these are just true. So I'll say, I'm, you know, I I want Billy to always feel safe telling me about things, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, whatever they might be. I want her to feel that I'm a, I'm a safe place to express those feelings, Um, especially, you know, this is an odd thing to say, but, you know, it's, there, there is no, not a lot of room in the world full of tragedy and hardship for two of the luckiest <laughs> uh, young white cisgendered people to complain. <laughs> There's other people's complaints are are bigger and with more merit in many ways, I think. But that doesn't mean you don't have them. That doesn't and mean I, they're not valid. And I want Billy to feel that she can always but, yeah. complain to me about something, you know, when she might not feel safe complaining to the Internet. Um... I also have had a great desire to model the treatment of a significant other for Billy. Um, I'm I'm only four years older, but I I've always hoped that she sees the way that I treat the people I'm in relationships with, um, and that I'm treating them well, and I'm respectful <laughs> yeah. of them.
7: It's very true. And I
2: don't want. I would never want her to to think mistreatment of her is acceptable because she saw me mistreating somebody emotionally so uh, that's always in in my mind not that i would ever want to mistreat anyone but i think it's it's an added layer of i want to treat this person the way that i would want anyone to treat my the other people that i love mm. my my parents my sister you know so Cute. i think that's a, a big part of it you know and uh and it's a you know if i've ever seen her being mistreated in a relationship, I the thing I think is, is, you know, you've never seen me treat anyone I'm in, you know, you've never seen me treat someone I I love that way. Um, And then to the world, you know, I think, uh, I think just, just using the privileges that we have, you know, for the greater good, I guess, I know that sounds sort of bold and maybe a little bit ambiguous, but, you know, we have um, platforms that we can use to talk about issues. We have, you know, the financial means to support um, causes and and people who are, you know, just plainly smarter than we are and and will be able to uh, achieve more with the money that we give them than we would be able to achieve with that money. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's my hope for for my impact on the world is just that I can make it, you know, slightly better or at the very least not make it any worse.
1: Billy and Phineas, it has been such a treat to speak with you this evening, my time, this afternoon, your time. If I think about the impact that these past 30 minutes have had on me, I'm so moved genuinely by the friendship that you have among siblings. I'm the eldest of five. I have three sisters and one brother. We're very close in age. And I think the impact that you've had on me is that I want to be that safe space for them. And I also want to be that place where they can kind of find joy and spontaneity too. And I'm incredibly grateful for your honesty and vulnerability in this conversation and wish you the very best of luck as No Time to Die moves through award season. You would be incredibly deserving of any sort of accolade that may come your way. Thank you so much for your time. What is
2: the name of your mom, if you don't mind me asking?
1: Her name is Kath. K A T H. Well, happy
2: birthday, happy birthday to Kath!
1: Kath. And thank
2: you for <laughs> thank for, you so much. Uh, for being willing to, share to, with uh, to 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 spare you know time out of your 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 mom's day. I always feel very guilty doing. We've we've played shows on our mom's birthday and had long flights, and I always feel kind of terrible. So thank you for for being willing to take time out of your day or your mom's birthday to no. sit with us.
1: Well, we'll see you in Dublin. Can't wait. Yeah. That does it for this week's show. We'll be
3: back next week. Uh, you can read so much award season coverage and everything else at vanityfair.com. You can follow us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen and on our own. I am at Katie Rich and Richard.
6: At cheer moment.
3: <laughs> and David.
6: <laughs> uh, David Canfield97.
3: And Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford. You can also sign up to text with us at joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text 917 We got someone texting about listening to Richard talking about cats, you know, two years ago, however, pre-pandemic. And just the, the fact that these things are still rattling around in your head brings, brings us all great joy. So please keep it coming. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the best preview of David Canfield's upcoming birthday party goes to Rebecca Ford.
4: Tom Holland's going to come out and dance.
0: You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper
2: with people you
3: really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo,
0: Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every
3: week on The New Yorker Radio Hour wherever you listen to podcasts.